Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Well, let's remain standing. I'll pray for us as we stand. From day to day, from hour to hour, forever reign. Heavenly Fathers, we've been singing this song. We have been singing of an all-embracing total reliance upon Jesus Christ. And we pray now as we look at your word, the Bible, that you would convince us that that kind of living is a, not only a right response, but the very best way we could live, ultimately for your praise and glory, but also for our good. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, let me encourage you to uh, turn uh, in your Bibles to uh, the reading that uh, Claire just read for us, Mark chapter 1. As we continue looking through Mark's Gospel, I've been cold all morning, I don't know why, um, but if you're cold, um, we'll be flicking through here, at least keep your fingers warm um, in the next little while. Now more seriously, the events that began at the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris last week have left us asking many questions, questions of national security and how any Western nation can have the resources and manpower to keep track of those they suspect might be capable of such attacks. Questions of freedom of speech, uh, whether people should be able to have total freedom to express whatever views they have, or if there is a line that really shouldn't be crossed. And of course, questions about religious extremism and the dangers of it. The way that young people, young men particularly, are being radicalised. In view of everything that happened in France last week and this week in Belgium, we might well find ourselves suspicious and worried when we read how Simon and Andrew and James and John responded to Jesus. Let me read again from verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, 
and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Look, I've always found these verses quite puzzling. Jesus walks past Simon and Andrew, calls them to follow him, and they leave their workplace immediately. They don't work any notice period. They don't even bother to tidy up their desks. They just walk out and follow Jesus. And then moments later, the same thing happens. Verse 19, when he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. James and John up and leave the family business, leaving dad high and dry without a moment's notice. I can only begin to wonder what their dad said to their mum over the tea table that night. We've loved these boys. We've given them everything. Look what they've gone and done. Now that instant response of leaving behind everything is puzzling, but in the light of the events of this last week in France, we might find it quite disturbing, alarming even. This sounds like the stuff of religious extremism, fanaticism, pretty close to unthinking radicalism, isn't it? Look, there are two things we tend to balk against when it comes to religion. The first is hypocrisy. We don't like hypocrisy. As uh, Peter was saying, we had Christianity Explored uh, this week and someone made exactly this point and I agree with them we instinctively react against people who say they believe something and then don't live it we're rightly intolerant of hypocrisy but on the other hand the other thing that we're very wary of is fanaticism of the extremists on the television news religious leaders are often described either as radicals or moderates we are very worried about radicals But when someone is introduced as a moderate, we expect to hear the voice of reason. So when Abu Hamza was sentenced to life imprisonment in the US last week, the BBC described him as a radical Muslim cleric. And I would guess that most of us felt relieved that he was sentenced to life and that it happened in the US. Because in the US, life usually means life, so he won't be getting out. And if there are any reprisals, it'll be against the US, not against us. Isn't that how we feel? Now, my point is this. We are very wary of religious extremism of any kind. We want to be moderates. We teach our children that moderation in all things is a good way to live. Don't be too zealous, but don't be uncommitted hypocrites either. But that's not what we see here in Mark chapter 1. First Simon and his brother Andrew, and then James and his brother John, up and leave everything to follow this religious leader. And we feel uneasy when we read these verses because that kind of response doesn't sound very balanced. We might even say it doesn't sound very Christian. And before we do say that, turn with me to Mark chapter 8, page 1012. This will get the fingers moving, keep you warm. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Just one verse, verse 34 page 1012 and here we see what it means to follow Jesus you see this is for everyone verse 34 the crowd and Jesus's disciples and then you see what Jesus says to them if anyone it's for everyone crowd Jesus disciples if anyone would come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me So what it means to follow Jesus, take up your cross, it's an essential part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But because that phrase, take up your cross, has entered into everyday parlance, it's lost its bite and edge these days. 
So we have an awkward boss at work or we feel under the weather with a seasonal bug and we tell a friend and they say, well, we all have our crosses to bear. Bearing our cross today has come to mean putting up with a temporary inconvenience. But that wasn't at all what it meant when Jesus first said these words. As Jesus spoke, he would have said, this would have sent a chill down our spine. For anyone who took up their cross in the first, first century Palestine was on their way to death to be executed. As Jesus was being led out to be crucified, he carried his cross, do you remember? So here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is saying, if anyone would follow me, he must sit in the electric chair, be ready to take a lethal injection, be ready to die for me. Now again, that'll make us feel very uneasy for two reasons. First, in the current climate, the most dangerous terrorists are those who don't care if they die for the cause. Whether it's being strapped with explosives and walking into a busy marketplace or taking machetes onto the streets of Woolwich and hacking a soldier to death, it's very hard for the security services to protect us against those who don't care if they lose their lives. Actually, those who even want to be martyrs. That's the first reason we're uneasy about this language of being ready to follow Jesus. But there's another reason. This challenges the way we live our lives. This challenge is what drives us and what we're prepared to give up. When I, um, when I conduct marriages here and people ask me to speak on Ephesians chapter 5, where husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church, I, I say to the groom, the couple are sort of sitting down there by then, I say to the groom that he is to be ready to die for his wife just as Jesus died for his people. And then I say to the newlywed husband, it's no good being all macho about it and saying you're ready to die for your wife if you won't even do your fair share of the housework. See, being ready to die for Jesus means being ready to live every area of my life completely for him. I may not actually be called to die for him, but it's hollow me saying I'm ready to die for Jesus if I'm not even ready to follow him in the everyday nitty gritty of life, is it? Now that makes us feel very uneasy because we want moderation in all things. When I first became a follower of Jesus Christ, I can still remember my dad saying, who incidentally loved me dearly and we had a very good relationship. And so out of concern for me, I can still remember dad saying to me that he thought I was just taking you all too seriously and assuring me that it was just a phase I was going through and that I would grow out of it. Mercifully, what actually happened was that he began to take it seriously, but that's another story, and I'll tell you that another time. The big point is this. Jesus is very clear that to follow him does mean giving up everything for him. So back in Mark chapter 1, as Simon and Andrew, and then the brothers James and John, up and leave everything, they were not taking Christianity too seriously. It was not just the first flush of youthful exuberance that in time they would grow out of. No, here in Mark chapter 1, we have examples of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. But you see, it goes against the grain, and whether it's the current climate of religious extremists or just our fear of having to put Jesus first above everything, this makes us feel mightily uneasy. So what are we to make of it? And honestly, what would lead anyone to do this, to give up everything for Christ? Well, look with me at Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. And 
The very first words in Mark's gospel that we hear from the lips of Jesus. I'll read from verse 14, Mark 1 verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. It's what we were hearing last week. Jesus is proclaiming good news, momentous news, the best news that you've ever heard. And that good news is all tied up with the kingdom of God. At Christianity Explored this week, we began to consider what we would want, what we'd expect if God came to, came to earth. I think I put it something like this to the group I was led. I said, if God walked in today, what would, what would you expect from him? And several people said, well, we'd want him to sort out the mess in the world. We want a better world. Now, my guess is that's a longing we all have or have had at some point in our lives. It's certainly what first century Jews were waiting for. They were waiting for the long ago promised and long awaited Christ, the spirit anointed king who would deliver on his promise to ushering a new kingdom, a completely new world order, that to put right all wrongs, to get rid of all evil, in short, to make the world a better place. So verse 15 is spectacularly good and momentous news. Jesus said, this new kingdom is near. It's not far away. It's not difficult to find. Jesus the king has come and so his kingdom is near. I've had uh, a number of really stimulating conversations this week. One person I I was uh, talking to was reflecting on the events in France and said, it seems we just can't ever live at peace with each other. And then uh, this person took me through the last century in a bit more detail than I'm going to do he talked about World War One and then World War Two, and then there was the Cold War when we were on the brink of blowing the world up with the atom bomb and if you're too young to remember that let me tell you that's not rhetoric there were times when we really did fear the catastrophe, the catastrophe of a nuclear holocaust back in those days and he continued and no sooner than that threat seems to have disappeared now we have global terrorism And I said to him, yes, as a human race, it seems we are hell-bent on hitting the self-destruct button every now and again, doesn't it? So, of course, we long for a better world. And what is true on the global stage is true at a personal level, too. We wish our world was better. Life is tough, even for people in S10. Don't be fooled into thinking that everyone in Fullwood has it all sorted. People are battered and bruised. Life knocks us. And for some, just as you get up, you're knocked down again. For others, you don't even manage to get up before life puts the boot in again. For you, I think it's an achievement you've even kept going. Well done. You should be congratulated on getting through another week, on holding it all together, because you have the most extraordinary griefs to bear. So you're surviving, but life's a constant battle. And look, that is no way to live life. And so you want a better world. See, we are all longing for this kingdom of God. We may never have ever called it that, but that's what we want. That is the deep longing of our hearts, a new world. And that's what Jesus has come to bring. That's what Simon and Andrew and then James and John were responding to. They were first century Jews who longed for the Christ to come into the world and to bring in this new world order. And of course they'd heard that Jesus was that Christ. 
that Jesus was that king who would bring in this new world. Look back with me to verses four to eight. We saw it last week. John the Baptist came and verse five, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Isn't that interesting? It seemed that everybody in the capital city, Jerusalem, and everyone in the surrounding area went out to hear John the Baptist. If it had been a ticketed event, it would have been sold out 10 times over. You wouldn't have got tickets for love nor money. Everybody went out to see John the Baptist and therefore everyone knew about Jesus because Jesus was the central character in John's message. Look at verse seven. This was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals are not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here is John the Baptist looking like a prophet, acting like a prophet, indeed was a prophet. And he says, there's one greater than me. Jesus is more than a prophet. He's gonna come. So you see, Simon and Andrew knew about Jesus and they had the same longing that we do. They wanted a better world. For them, it was called the kingdom of God and it had been promised to them in the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And so when the king turned up on the scene and called them to be part of his kingdom, they went like a shot. But still, we have to ask, what makes this different from the madness of the religious extremism that is wreaking havoc in our world right now see when charismatic human leaders say follow me it is very dangerous history is littered with the catastrophic results of people willing people following powerful men what makes this different well two things it is who jesus is and it is what he came to do Who Jesus is, this is why the first half of chapter one is so crucial. I won't go over it all again. If you missed it last week, you can download the sermon and listen for yourself. But in a nutshell, Mark gives us solid evidence to prove that Jesus is more than just a man. He's not just another in the long line of Israel's kings. No, this spirit-anointed Christ is none other than the Lord Almighty, the unique Son of God, And the rest of Mark's gospel and all the supernatural events that we read confirm that Jesus is who he is. So you see, whether they realised it or not fully, when Simon, Andrew, James and John up and left to follow Jesus, they weren't just following another charismatic leader. That incidentally is why they went instantly. Jesus has such authority that when he calls, his call is irresistible. How many of us here will remember that moment when it first came to us? Even though it was over 30 years ago for me now, I can still remember it as if it were yesterday. As I started to read not, Math, not Mark's gospel, but Matthew's gospel, while there was so much that I didn't understand, I did know that in Jesus I was meeting a man who was more than a man. I was meeting the king of the entire universe, and I felt that glorious, irresistible pull to follow him whatever. This is not just about following a mesmerizing, a magnetic personality. This is about following the one who knows me inside and out because he made me. And we see that powerfully in the next section. Look at verse 21. They went to Capernaum and uh, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not just as teachers of the law. 
See, as the new disciples and others listened to Jesus' teaching in the synagogue, they were, they were hearing teaching like they'd never heard before. They recognised it as teaching with an authority from on high. Now, the word authority there in verse 22 literally means out of the original stuff. I'm told it comes from the same root as the word author. And so Tim Keller writes this way. He says, Jesus didn't just clarify what they already knew or simply interpret the scriptures in the way the teachers of the law did. His listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author, as the author of their lives. And it left them dumbfounded. That's it about Jesus. In him, we're not just meeting a great teacher, a philosopher, or someone who made to, came to make sense of life. We're meeting the very one who is the, the author of life itself, the creator of life, the universe, and everything, the creator of you and me. And so when he speaks, he speaks with authority. He speaks right into our lives. And what we see next takes that authority to a a new level completely and shows us why following Jesus unreservedly and wholeheartedly is not dangerous extremism but the most safe and sensible thing anyone can ever do you see what we read next shows us what he's come to do look at verse 23 just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out what do you want with me Jesus son of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are the holy one of God be quiet said Jesus sternly come out of him And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? Here is Jesus face to face with evil. And while this is the first time we encounter an evil spirit in Mark's gospel, as we read on through Mark's gospel, we see that evil spirits are hell bent on death and destruction. That's what they do. They've come to kill and destroy. But Jesus is more powerful than them. They can't stand against him. And here's the thing. Jesus has come to defeat death, to destruct that which destroys. He has come to free this world from evil. If you want to call him a fanatic, then he's fanatical about destroying evil. And he has the authority to do it. And at the heart of his character is love. In these last days, we've seen extremist, fundamentalist terrorists in Paris, and incidentally, not only in Paris, even though it's barely hit the news, even worse has been happening in Nigeria in recent days. Amnesty International are reporting catastrophic damage and indiscriminate killing, where one report is suggesting that hundreds and hundreds of people have been brutally murdered. Some, one report I read said 2,000. No wonder we're fearful of religious extremism. But do not fear following Jesus Christ, for Jesus has come to destroy death and destruction. He has come to bring life and usher in a new kingdom, a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness and equity, a kingdom of love. He has come to give us what we all want. Following this king will not destroy you, and it will not lead you to destroy anyone else. This king will not crush you, quite the opposite. He came to be crushed for you. And he will not ask you to pick up a gun or a sword. Look again closely at how Jesus dealt with this evil spirit. He said, verse 25, be quiet, come out of him. 
And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. And then look at the crowd's response in verse 27. The people were all so amazed that they asked, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. Now, isn't that interesting? This is a new teaching, not a new exorcism. It was his teaching, his words that defeated the evil spirit. I guess many of you, if not all of you, saw the cartoons last week after the attacks on the Charlie Hebdo office. Cartoons of uh, men dressed in black, wearing balaclavas and pointing guns. And on the other side of the page were pencils that were broken and then perhaps resharpened, pointing at the terrorists. Or with the erasers on the end of the pencils rubbing out the terrorists. They were brilliant cartoons. The message was clear. This evil will not destroy freedom of speech, but free speech will overcome evil. Well, I like the sentiment, but it's not fully true. As we look here at Jesus, we, we see Jesus in the synagogue, and if it were depicted in a cartoon, there would be an evil spirit on one side of the page, a dark, sinister, grotesque character out to kill. And on the other side of the page, there would be the word of Jesus Christ, the Bible being held up and the evil spirit cowering in defeat. This is how evil is defeated. And most importantly, that is what Jesus is about. The eradication of evil, the death of death, the destruction of destruction. And that's why being sold out for Jesus isn't dangerous. Friends, this is the good news of God, verse 15. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, evil is being defeated. A new world order will be ushered in one day. No, not in this world fully, but in the next. So, verse 15, repent and believe the good news. And we do need to do that. If we're going to be part of God's kingdom, that does need to happen. We need to repent because we are part of the problem. We we saw that last week. One last flick of the page as we close. So come with me to Mark chapter 7. Verses we looked at last week, but they're so crucial for us to understand. Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. Here is Jesus speaking about what it means to be clean before God. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, for from within... Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. There is Jesus' devastating analysis of the human condition. And it tells me I'm part of the problem with this world. Me. I don't know about you, but let me tell you how it's been for me. Over the years, I've said things that have left people really hurt. Sometimes through thoughtlessness, other times because I've been selfishly wrapped up in myself. Sometimes because, as we read here, of my greed and self-importance. And other times through my envy and slander, I've left a trail of hurt behind me. So I need to repent. I need to change. I need to be washed clean by Jesus because even if I can change and live life differently, I still have the past there. Do you see how Jesus described all things as well? 
Do you see how he describes me? Verse 23. All these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. Evil. Evil is in me. And it destroys others and it will destroy me in this life or the next. And so do you see, while handing my whole life over to him unreservedly and wholeheartedly sounds scary and, and risky, while giving up everything for Jesus, like Simon and Andrew and James and John, while it looks crazy, be sure of this, it is the most rational and comforting and safe thing that I can ever do. It is actually the way I find life, abundant, satisfying life. It is the way into God's kingdom, a kingdom that will be ushered in one day at the end of time. A kingdom where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because evil will have been eradicated. Now that is a kingdom worth being part of. And that's a kingdom worth giving up everything for. Let's pray together. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. And at once they left their nets and followed him. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, Father, we thank you for this one Lord Jesus, the one who is uniquely the Son of God, the King who can bring in this wonderful kingdom, the one who alone can defeat evil, clean us, giving us a fresh start and an entrance into your kingdom. We ask you, please, to help us to see how his kingdom That kingdom, your kingdom, is better than anything else we see in this world. And we pray that in seeing that, we would see that to live life your way, to enter into that kingdom, is the best thing for us. Help us then to do that in the way that these disciples did, wholeheartedly, unreservedly, completely, that we may be changed from the inside out, For your praise and glory. Amen.